Thank you, Emily, for reading Longest Passage in a Long Time. We appreciate that. Uh, hey, I'm super excited this morning to open up God's Word with you. We just read it, and we're committed to reading God's Word because that is what fuels, grows, transforms us into Jesus as a church. So um, I'm also excited because we have uh, someone who is becoming a familiar face to our church. We have Tim Davis with us this morning. Super excited to hear him open up God's Word for us. Uh, Tim was here uh, earlier this summer, back when, and, and some of you remember this, back when we did church in the scorching heat of our eastern-facing parking lot, and then he came in here and preached. I'll tell you, Tim, it's great having mm-hmm. the one service and being indoors in a climate-controlled environment. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been as thankful for it. But uh, what I want to do is I just I want to I want to pray for Tim, and then I'm going to let him take over and uh, and lead us this morning. So we're thankful for you, brother. Yeah, Jesus, I pray for Tim. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use him. Uh, God, you've already used him in in our church, and we're so thankful for what we know about him. We praise you that that he has a love for your word, that he is faithful to serve your church by studying hard and and working uh, to put good, hearty messages together to encourage us, to to help us to trust you, Jesus, and to follow you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give him wisdom this morning about what what he's going to share with us. And uh, God, I pray uh, that you would bless his family, and I pray that, uh, Lord, they would be uh, encouraged by the word that they hear as well. Um, God, we're so thankful for this brother, and so God, I pray right now that your spirit would be upon him to use him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Pastor Gabe, thank you so much for the invitation again. Uh, it is a joy to be with y'all. Um, this is a joy for me to be able to come and preach, but it also is something I take seriously as well. So uh, again, Pastor Gabe, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been mandated, and it's also with joy, to introduce uh, my family. So Ashley, my lovely wife, you want to just throw your hand up? There she is. And uh, the newest addition to our family, little Nolan Jack Davis. And so he was born on January 15th, uh, just a couple months ago. So something good came out of COVID. Uh, at, least one, at least one thing. So it's, it's, uh, it's good to be here uh, with y'all as a family. It's good to be here with you guys. Well, from 2008 to 2012, uh, I had the privilege of attending Baylor University. So as you can imagine, I'm still riding the high from two weeks ago. If you know anything about college basketball, you know that Baylor defeated the undefeated uh, Gonzaga Bulldogs 86 to 70 in the national championship. Just a pure display of dominance. But the next day uh, at work, I met for a team meeting, and the first thing that one of my coworkers said to me was, Tim, Congrats on your victory last night. Now, of course, she didn't say it like that. She said, Tim, congrats on your victory last night. But I thought it was funny to say that because, or at least to use the word your. Congrats on your victory last night because I didn't do anything to help them win. I didn't contribute in any way, shape, or form. Uh, And yet she said, congrats on your victory. Now, of course, it's obvious why she said that. I graduated from Baylor. Baylor won, so naturally she congratulated me. But what she did here is intuitive for all of us. 
whether we've thought about it or not, uh, she identified me with the success of my representative. Do you remember group projects back in high school? You have a group of four, one person does all the work, but then everybody gets the A. Right, when a representative succeeds, everyone connected to the representative is incorporated into their success, invited into the celebration, and partakers at the feast. Now on the first page of the Bible, humanity is created in God's image. Functionally, we're called to have dominion over the earth, an authoritative mandate to fill the earth with the blessing of God. But these first humans take this high calling and pervert it. Instead of following God's call, they choose their own way and sin enters the world. Now, instead of being incorporated into Adam's success, humanity is incorporated into the failure of our initial representative. From here, we follow suit and we sin right alongside Adam. Now, in spite of humanity's sin, God is committed to extending his blessing to the ends of the earth and using humanity to mediate his authority to do so. And so he calls his people Israel as his own possession to have this role. And, and in Exodus 4, uh, verses 22 and 23, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he might serve me. Now we know how the story goes. Israel, God's son, is brought out of Egypt by God, but like their first representatives, they fail to mediate God's authority in order that the world might be incorporated into the blessing of God. Now reading the Old Testament is like looking into a mirror. We recognize the great calling with which humans have been given. It's a privilege. Yet all of us fall short of this great calling with which we've been given. Every last one of us falls short of the glory of God. As we read the Old Testament, at every turn, we're filled with anticipation and longing, right alongside the biblical authors. We're filled with anticipation and longing for a representative to come. One who succeeds where humanity in general, but Israel in particular, has failed. Humanity's story, Israel's story, and our story is marked by an inability to truly follow God and mediate his authority to the ends of the earth. On our own, we just can't do it. We need good news of a representative who succeeds where we don't. And so we turn to the gospel. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text for today. Father, I pray that as we dive into the passage that Emily just read, um, as we number ourselves alongside the crowd, I pray that we would have minds and hearts attuned to hear what Jesus has to say. And I pray that as we disperse this morning, like the crowds eventually dispersed on that day, that we would become more virtuous individuals as a result, and that our hearts would be compelled by Jesus, our Savior, and our great representative. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. If you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 23 through 46. That's what Emily just read, and that's where we'll be today. So you turn on Hulu or your favorite viewing uh, channel device, and we pick up where we left off. So what we're looking at today, it constitutes a new episode. So up to this point, we've watched this journey of a small town preacher slowly moving from Galilee to the southern region of Judea. 
Now the tension in the story is heating up primarily between Jesus and the religious leaders as Jesus moves into the city of Jerusalem and that's where we find ourselves today. It's the hub of all of the religious activity. Now at this point we're just days before Jesus' arrest and his death. And I remind you that this is also the week of Passover, uh, probably the most engaged Jewish festival um, that was celebrated. So Jews would come from every neighboring city and province to celebrate. And one scholar actually estimates that the population of Jerusalem around this time was about 30,000. But during the week of Passover, there were closer to 180,000 people present. So from 30,000 to 180,000 people. So Jerusalem is really busy. So Jesus, alongside his traveling companions, is bumping shoulders with the crowds at the temple courtyard, and it's here that the Jewish leaders spot him and question him. Now, the, cr- the crowds love these kinds of exchanges, and so they're just soaking this up. Um, but this is more than just a mere exchange between leaders. The Jewish authorities here, they challenge the authority of Jesus. So here's what we're about to watch. Scene one The crowds gather and the leaders confront Jesus' authority. Scene two of the episode, the camera angle switches and Jesus teaches through the medium of parables. Scene three and the final scene, the director cuts all background noise, crowd chatter, and music as Jesus provides his concluding reflections. The kind of reflections that keep you thinking for hours in the same way that you leave the movie Inception and find yourself thinking for hours. So that's the movement of the episode. Now, if you're a note taker, here are Jesus's teaching points, and there's three of them. First, in his parables, Jesus highlights the failure of Israel's authorities to respond to God's call. Jesus highlights the failure of Israel's authorities to respond to God's call. Second, he highlights how their failed response pertains to the true people of God. He highlights how their failed response pertains to the true people of God. Third and lastly, Jesus highlights the substantive nature of his authority as Israel's long-awaited representative. He highlights the substantive nature of his authority as Israel's long-awaited representative. So with this uh, overview in mind, let's go ahead and dive into the text and see how this uh, plays out. So read with me. And when he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So again, here's this small town preacher, yet he walks around as if he owns the place. In the last uh, last episode, Jesus threw over tables and drove people out of the temple courtyards for trying to turn a prophet. He heals the lame and the blind. He teaches Um, substantially, and he walks around with a peculiar authority that actually threatens the authority of the priests and the elders. As far as they're concerned, they're thinking, we didn't give you this authority. So who did? Now it was clear to Jesus that their question was disingenuous. So Jesus turns to them with a question of his own. Look with me at verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now, Jesus keeps the subject matter the same. He's still talking about authority, but he switches the focus from himself to John the baptizer. By what authority did John baptize? Did the authority of his ministry come from heaven 
Was it from God or was it his own earthly enterprise? Now, Jesus' counter question here is brilliant. If they answer the question, if they answer the question, they will in effect answer their own question because John's ministry pointed to the ministry of Jesus. John's ministry and Jesus' ministry were connected. So if they say from heaven, well, then you have your answer about Jesus, but of course they don't want that. Now, if they say from earth, the answer that they believed to be true about John's ministry, they open themselves up to instantaneous public outrage from the crowds. And so we continue. Look with me where Jesus finishes in verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him and therefore believe me? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So how much more Jesus? So they answered Jesus, trying to sneak their way out of the question. We don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, as we number ourselves along the crowds, we, would all, uh, we all would have understood Jesus's implied claim here to divine authority. It wasn't explicitly claimed, but implicitly clear enough. In fact, direct your attention to the final verse, the final verse of today's passage, verse 46. Verse 46 informs us that the crowds were on Jesus's side. They held him to be a prophet. They recognized this divine authority. Now, this opening scene, it creates the tension to be resolved by the end of the episode. To feel the weight of the resolution, we need to try and feel the weight of the tension created here, and admittedly, it's really difficult. Because we don't live in a culture that prioritizes, celebrates, or honors those in authority. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Our culture's social imaginary, our collective ideas on what the good life looks like, is plagued by the authentic self, an expressive individualism where the highest authority can be found by looking inward at our own desires, not outward at anyone or anything, right? Just watch any Disney movie and you get this picture. So as Jesus's authority is brought into question, we can be tempted to breeze past this in our morning reflections and we can be tempted to move past it here. But authority matters in honor-shame cultures. It matters here in the first century, but most importantly, it matters to God. So it should matter to us as individuals who wanna follow Jesus faithfully. So listen to the question with first century ears. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, as we saw, Jesus is unfazed by the question and traps them with a question of his own. Having silenced the opposition now, he now goes on to teach through parables. This is scene two. And as he does, he highlights the failure of Israel's authorities as they fail to respond to God's call and the implication therein for the true people of God. So let's go ahead and dive in. Follow with me starting in verse 28. So what do you think? A man has two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I'll go, sir. But he didn't. Then Jesus asks the religious leaders, which of the two did the will of his father? And they responded to him, the first. And then Jesus said, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. 
but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Now, logically, this first parable is easy to follow. So you have two children, and you say to both, go clean your room, right? The first says, mom, but then thinks about it and goes and does it. The second says, sure thing, mom, but then doesn't go and clean the room. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are likened to the child who says, mom, but then goes. The religious authorities, on the other hand, are equated with the one who proclaims, yes, mom, but then doesn't. So that's the basic logic here. Now, in using this kind of parable against the religious authorities, we're reminded of Nathan's parable launched against the authoritative King David. Remember when he slept with Uriah's wife Bathsheba? He got her pregnant, and then he devised three plans to avoid the consequences because the first two failed. Now, David, though, as we recall, he repented upon hearing Nathan's parable. We'd hope for the same kind of response here in the temple courtyard, but none is given. The religious leaders remain steadfastly opposed to Jesus here. So because of this, we read verse 31. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. So think about your job. Have you ever had someone, perhaps someone poor at their job, in line to receive a promotion before you? You experience real humiliation waiting behind someone lesser. Something to this effect is going on, or perhaps they stand in line behind the tax collectors and prostitutes. They end up entering, but the club gets full and the door is shut before the religious authorities ever enter. Either way, Jesus condemns the religious leaders because they never changed their minds even after they saw the most wretched in society repent and believe John's message of righteousness that points to the righteousness of Jesus. So you have Israel's leaders' failed response and what this means for the true people of God. Israel's leaders, failed response on the one hand and what this means for the true people of God. Let me read you what D.A. Carson says. He says, the shock value of Jesus' statement can only be appreciated when the low esteem in which tax collectors were held, not to mention prostitutes, is taken into account. In our day of soft pornography in the media, we are not shocked by prostitutes. But Jesus is saying that the scum of society, though it says no to God at first, repents, performs the Father's will, and enters the kingdom. Whereas the religious authorities loudly say yes to God, but never do what he says. And therefore they fail to enter. Their righteousness is not enough. Thus, the parable makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but between religious leader and public sinner. What began as a fun exchange between teachers on the week of Passover has turned into something more awkwardly intense and yet worthy of our undivided attention. Jesus says to you, O leader, your righteousness is not enough. You fail to respond to God's call and you fail to mediate God's authority. Look and learn instead from the tax collectors and the prostitutes before you. Look and learn instead from the tax collectors and the prostitutes before you because my kingdom is comprised of public sinners aware of their need. And he doesn't stop there. Look with me at verse 33. Here another parable. 
There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son coming, they said to themselves, hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... Now, Jesus asks the religious leaders here to participate in the answer yet again. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they respond to Jesus. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their seasons. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you're aware of this vineyard language. It was used in the last parable as well. So in Isaiah chapter five, Israel is likened to a vineyard that failed to produce fruit. But here, Jesus focuses in on the tenant's failure in particular. The tenants killed the servants in the parable, and in the same way, Israel's leaders killed the prophets of old. You might recall 1 Kings 18, where Obadiah hid a hundred prophets from uh, King Ahab and Jezebel. So God sent prophets, but they were killed. In this parable, servants are sent, but they're killed. Now, what's the result? The religious leaders give the answer, and once again, it's used against them. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to other tenants. So both uh, both parables highlight the failure of of Israel's authorities to respond to God's call, and both feature the arrival of unexpected new members. Conceivably, the tax collector, the prostitute, the public sinner who repents. But the climax of this parable, which differentiates itself from the previous parable, the point Jesus drives home is what he's already highlighted to his disciples in their journey thus far, that the true son of God will be killed. So recall Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus and his disciples are in the northern region of Galilee, but he tells them that their journey is headed south to the big city of Jerusalem. So think stereotypical sports movie. You have the small town kid who heads to the big city school. Except for Jesus, he's not headed to a football stadium. His arena of play, as he makes known, is the arena of suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He'll be killed yet raised from death to life. In this parable, Jesus points to his ensuing death that he's made known to his disciples already. And it's with this climactic point that we move to scene three, where the music cuts out, the the crowd chatter is silenced, and Jesus brings his reflections to a conclusion. So verse 42, and hold your finger here because we'll come back to it at the end. Jesus says, have you never read your Bibles, O leaders of Israel? Have you never read your Bibles? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, even to tax collectors and prostitutes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Episode over. So imagine what it would have been like for people to show up late to this exchange, feeling the intensity of the conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders. They start asking, what did Jesus say? What did I miss? And for those of us in the crowd committed to following Jesus, how would you recap the significance of this event with those who showed up late? Well, we probably say something to the extent of the religious leaders, they, they found fault in Jesus's authoritative swagger. But Jesus used this opportunity to launch an attack. And Jesus makes clear it's the religious leaders who are at fault. It's these leaders who have failed to respond to God's call and mediate his authority. And then through two parables, Jesus highlighted the failure and unpacks the consequences for those who truly belong to God. If you're showing up late, just know God's people are those who, like the tax collector and prostitute, eventually turn to Jesus with humble repentance. So having witnessed this encounter, let me offer three suggestions that will guide us to become more virtuous and faithful followers of Jesus. Let's reflect, respond, and rejoice. So number one, reflect. Reflect upon your posture before authority. A tax collector or prostitute standing before Jesus would have got it. They understood their sin. On the other hand, the religious leader's authority may very well have been the reason they stood unmoved by Jesus' authority. Now, though our contexts are different, their authority was central to their identity. Likewise, in our culture, our authority, autonomy, authentic self is central to ours. Our authority may very well be the reason we stand unmoved in the presence of Jesus, yet animated before the newest book on leadership or identity. Reflect upon your posture before authority and learn from tax collectors and prostitutes. Number two, respond. Respond now like the tax collectors and prostitutes here. Avoid the chief elder's humiliation of watching others go in before you. In the same way young children in a royal family would learn how to posture themselves in the presence of the king and queen, we should take our lessons from these tax collectors and prostitutes as they have much to teach us about how to stand in the presence of Jesus. If you're newer to faith, you may feel your need for Jesus more than others of us, and we can learn from you. It's fitting that we respond with humility and repentance. Third and lastly, rejoice. Rejoice in your long-awaited, perfect representative. Rejoice in your long-awaited, perfect representative. Do you still have your finger on verse 42? If not, look there with me. After his parable of the tenants, he asks, have you never read your Bibles? So he's continuing his flow of thought. Jesus connects the dots between the parable and the tenants, uh, I'm sorry, the parable of the tenants in this Old Testament passage. But what is he connecting? So read with me. The stone that the builders rejected. So here's the connection. It's the rejected one. The son of the parable and the stone in this passage. 
This quotation comes from Psalm 118, the final and climactic psalm of the Egyptian halal, likely the psalm that Jesus and the disciples sang together at the Last Supper. But about two-thirds of the way through this psalm, the psalmist shouts this rather enigmatic phrase, at least for us. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone language is language of the temple, the place where, God's, the place where God dwells with humanity and the place where heaven meets earth. The cornerstone, or head of the corner, is a stone that held two walls together. Point being, this stone is integral to the integrity of the temple wall, essential to the structure where heaven meets earth. But who is this cornerstone? As he recounts God's enduring deliverance and faithfulness to Israel in Psalm 118, the psalmist uses cornerstone as language representative to the people of Israel as a whole. Israel is this rejected stone become cornerstone. Israel is integral to God's architectural plan to extend the temple walls of his presence to the ends of the earth. This stone, Israel, was rejected by the builders. Who are the builders? Well, builders are those who are wise. The wise nations of the world rejected Israel, and they rejected this stone. But this rejected stone has become the most important stone in God's architectural plan to extend his templing presence. It pleased the Lord to use what was foolish in this world to shame the wise. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This stone is a reference to corporate Israel, but Jesus uses this psalm in reference to himself. Effectively, Jesus states, I am the true Israel. I am the true son of God. Where humanity in general and Israel in particular failed to mediate God's authority, Jesus succeeds. Jesus stands as Israel's long-awaited representative, Jesus stands as the cornerstone to a new humanity. And everyone connected to representative Jesus is incorporated into his success. So Paul states at the end of Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Have you never read your Bibles, O leaders of Israel? The stone, that's me, that the builders now apply to you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone in extending God's presence, blessing, and authority to the ends of the earth. And all of this is part of God's plan. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Hear the religious authorities question again. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus states, as the true Israel, the true son of God, your long-awaited representative, by what authority are you doing these things? As one who successfully mediates God's authority where you failed, by what authority are you doing these things? As one who remains obedient in following God's call all the way to the cross for you. By what authority are you doing these things? 
as one able to forgive sins, the sins of many, even tax collectors and prostitutes. By what authority are you doing these things? As the rejected son of the parable, yet vindicated one sent by the Father. By what authority are you doing these things? As the cornerstone to God's templing presence on earth, by what authority are you doing these things? As the true and better Adam, the cornerstone of a new humanity, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus says again, I am the true Israel, the true son of God, and your long-awaited representative. So brothers and sisters, I say to you what my coworker said to me. Congratulations on your victory. You didn't do anything, but your representative did everything. Rejoice in his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, his victorious resurrection, because we find ourselves incorporated into his success, invited into the celebration and partakers at the feast. So come and behold this wondrous mystery. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let me pray. Father, even as we sang earlier, Christ is our great cornerstone. And because of his accomplishment upon the cross, because of his victorious resurrection, all of us who have professed faith in Jesus are incorporated into his success. We're invited to celebrate and we're, we're also partakers in the feast. The feast that we receive in part right now, but that we'll receive in full one day. Father, I pray that as we come to your table right now, that it would be a foreshadowing of the glorious feast to come. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.